Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. Please turn now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, except we first have our hymn of preparation. The strife is o'er, the battle done.
Please turn now to Mark chapter 15. For our New Testament reading. Jesus has just died upon the cross. And this is what God through Mark has recorded for us. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, we do thank you that you have preserved for us these words about Jesus, that you have not left us alone in fear, but have preserved in writing the truth. And we would pray today that you would send your spirit to take the truth of your word and to engrave it upon our hearts, that our eyes would be open to behold Christ by faith, that our ears might be unplugged, that we might hear him speaking to us even this morning. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts 
pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Hadra, our Redeemer, we come in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no day of greater joy for the Christian and for the Christian church than this day that we call Easter. For on this day we celebrate the victory of Jesus the Christ over sin and death and hell by his resurrection from the grave. Each of the four Gospels highlights this day, giving one fourfold testimony to this glorious event, yet from four different perspectives. Of these, that given in Mark is distinct both in its brevity and its abruptness. Most scholars agree that Mark's account actually ends with verse 8 of chapter 16. The remaining verses that are found in many Bibles are missing from many of the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. And the content of these verses differs from the rest of Mark's gospel in both vocabulary and in style, seeming to contain elements put together from the other three gospel accounts. Now, if this analysis is correct, that it actually ends here with verse 8, where we ended this morning our reading, I believe it does end there. And so that Mark's gospel actually ends with verse 8. What makes this account most unique from every other gospel account of the resurrection of Jesus is that it depicts these events on the most joyous of days by ending with the note of fear. I'm guessing that it's this incongruity that on the most joyous of days, Mark would, would end with a word of fear that made the early church eager both to add something and to accept it as part of a longer ending to his gospel in order to end on a more positive note. Yet even what we have here up to verse 8, it's not all bleak. The message of the angel to the women offers a promise and hope of joyful reunion in Galilee with the living Jesus. Yet their response to this message is one of fear. Why? Why does Mark highlight this and what does he want us to see in ending this way? I believe at least in part that ending with this emphasis on fear prevents us from missing the meaning of the resurrection and our eagerness to rush from the sorrow of Good Friday to the joy of Easter morning. The journey of faith from the cross to the resurrection must not be short-circuited if we are to experience truth. Easter joy. There is, 
No greater joy than that of Easter. But it is Easter faith alone that can produce Easter joy. The road from the sorrow of death to the joy of life eternal requires that your faith pass through both the courage and fear. The courage of identifying with the crucified Savior, the fear of embracing a resurrected Lord. This is something in particular that Mark's account helps us to see. You might remember that Mark began his gospel account in chapter 1, verse 1, with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The words of the centurion in Mark 15, 39, just before our present text begins, state that truly this man was the Son of God. And those words serve as a bookend to the beginning of Mark's gospel so that we see that the entire life and ministry of Jesus is meant to be seen through the lens of Jesus as the Son of God. That title is noteworthy because it is only used two other times in the Gospel of Mark, and both of those instances are from the lips of demons who are seeking to bring disrespect on Jesus and discredit him because they were the ones announcing that he was the Son of God. The placement of this bookend in verse 39, truly he was the Son of God, highlighting those words of this Gentile centurion serves to set off the remaining part of Mark's gospel. And in having this last portion set off, it helps us to see that there is another set of bookends, this time a contrasting set of bookends, with the courage of Joseph in verse 43, contrasting and balancing the fear of the women in chapter 16, verse 8. But the ironic thing is that this courage and fear seems to be upside down because the courage comes after crucifixion when you would expect there to be fear. And the fear comes after resurrection when you would expect there to be courage and joy. Now, the amazing response of courage can only be properly comprehended through the awful reality of crucifixion. Read with me verse 42 and 43. When the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body 
of Jesus. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of execution reserved for Rome's worst enemies. So heinous that Roman citizens were never allowed to be crucified because it was considered too horrible for a citizen of Rome to be subjected to. Death by crucifixion was usually prolonged over several days because in nailing a person to the cross, no vital organs were pierced by the nail. It was the weight of the victim's own body, dragging downward by gravity, fighting against one's effort to breathe, compounded by starvation and dehydration that slowly and torturously brought on death. That is why Pilate asked Joseph for confirmation that Jesus really died. The thought that he had died the same afternoon within but a few hours of his crucifixion was startling to him because ordinarily it took so much longer. Furthermore, to be put to death by crucifixion meant forfeiture both of possessions and of the right to burial. Only a magistrate could authorize a burial after a crucifixion. And orderly, ordinarily, that was never permitted in the case of charges of high treason. The bodies of the crucified were left to hang on the crosses until they were eaten by birds or animals that might reach up to claw at them or until the bodies simply decayed from the heat and the weather. It was brutal. That Pilate permitted Jesus to be buried shows just how much Pilate in his heart of hearts believed that Jesus truly was innocent of the charges that were brought against him because Jesus was charged with high treason. Remember the placard hanging above his head? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It was a mockery, but it was also the charge. Treason against the emperor of Rome. Now, for Joseph to ask for Jesus' body and then to take it in his arms and bury it was a great act of courage. For he, as a respected member of the council, was an elite member of society. And yet he was, in taking that body, not only identifying with a criminal, but a treasonous enemy of the state and a despised heretic of the religious establishment. In caring for Jesus' body, 
as having died on the cross, he was, in effect, taking upon himself his cross in order to follow him. In a lesser manner, but still to be noted, the women also showed a degree of courage in purchasing expensive ointments and going out early alone to the tomb in identifying with Jesus by their care for his body, a body which after having been in the tomb for those many hours was already beginning to stink with decay. The way of faith calls for more than mere sorrow at Jesus dying. It calls for courage and commitment to the crucified. Mark emphasizes this courage because you too must have the courage of commitment to Jesus. In our increasingly secularized and paganized culture, there is more and more disdain and disrespect for those who identify with Jesus. Cultural momentum is no longer on your side. Our culture is pitted against Jesus, and indeed it has been for a number of years now, but it was so slow in coming, we did not really see it, even though the evidence was there. 30 or 40 years ago, there was a famous artist who set forth his sculpture that was acclaimed by many for its artistic expression. And all he did was urinate in a jar and drop a crucifix in it. And it was displayed at a federally funded artistic display in a museum. On the other hand, if you were to draw any kind of picture of the Muslim leader Muhammad, you would be cited for blasphemy and bigotry and religious intolerance. Praying the Lord's Prayer taught by Jesus in a public school is forbidden as religious indoctrination. It has been for 50 or 60 years now. But schools in California not long ago were teaching the students to pray a prayer of Muhammad as educational enrichment. Mock the name of Jesus and you are rewarded with laughter. Mock the name of Muhammad. You face death threats and rioting. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ought to disrespect the Muslim's leader. I'm merely showing what has been happening in our culture. It takes courage to identify with the crucified Jesus. Too many people don't want to have to be courageous for Jesus. They want to simply rush right in and grab some Easter joy. They forget what Jesus himself warned 
right after Peter, for the first time, identified him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He warned that he would be ashamed of those when he returned in glory of all who had been ashamed of him. The courage to follow Christ can only be measured through the awful reality of the crucifixion. But crucifixion courage in and of itself will not bring you Easter joy. You first need to encounter resurrection fear. Fear is the natural response of people, as we find in the Bible, who encounter God or his angelic messengers. Joy is not normally their first response. That's why the angelies, angels regularly say when they appear, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Why do they say do not be afraid except that everyone is afraid when they come? And why are people afraid when they come? Because in the angels they encounter a hint of the divine glory. And when a human, a sinful human, encounters the divine glory, their immediate reaction, your immediate reaction, will be an instantaneous awareness of your own sin before a holy, almighty God. An awareness of your unworthiness in the face of his holiness. The response of resurrection fear can only be experienced through a human encounter with the divine. And so in chapter 16, beginning with verse 6, the angel said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That was all good news, and yet what happened? They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were afraid. Despite the sparsity of words in his account, Mark makes it clear that in the resurrection of Jesus, God has revealed his divine presence. The inexplicable mystery of the missing body and the open tomb. The incomparable power which alone can explain it. The angelic messenger who arrived to proclaim it. And the irresistible fear of the women who experience it all point to the presence of God. And this is precisely what Mark sets before us. The women are courageously rushing toward the tomb when they suddenly realize that their good intentions will be thwarted by this immovable stone, at least for those women. It was a large stone that had been rolled in front of the grave. They had seen it with their own eyes. But when they arrive, the immovable has been moved. 
when they enter the inexplicably open tomb, the body of Jesus is missing. But in its place, they encounter this angelic messenger. Now, Mark doesn't actually call him an angel. But it's clear that he is a messenger from God. The moved stone, the missing body, the manner of his appearance, the message from Jesus. It's almost like a Alfred Hitchcock thriller. Just all these different elements pointing to something that is beyond the normal. We call it paranormal. Something there that we don't know and understand beyond ourselves. Indeed, the fact that Mark says he was wearing a white robe immediately brings to mind the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus, after the disciples had acclaimed him, as the Christ, took them up to the mountain and suddenly Jesus appeared before them in a dazzling white robe. And those are the only two verses in Mark where that word white appears. We are meant to make that identification. And then you will remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, mysterious figures appear. Moses and Elijah seemingly out of nowhere. Where is this messenger in the white robe? Where did he come from? And then the voice from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. The voice of the angel. Do not be alarmed. Seek Jesus. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples he will meet you in Galilee. When the disciples heard the voice on the mountain, they were afraid because they had encountered a revelation of the divine. And now here, the women are afraid because they had encountered an intimation of the holy presence of God, of the divinity of Jesus. Does not the hand of God in the resurrection of Jesus grip your attention and fill you even with just a little bit of holy fear? Crucifixion courage was not enough. They had seemingly mastered that on their own and in a sense the fear of the women was no great feat because Jesus had said just as he told you that he would rise from the dead. It was not enough for them to grieve the death of the man Jesus. They needed to apprehend him as the divine Christ through the experience of resurrection fear. Only then could there be real Easter joy. But Mark doesn't record their joy. He doesn't even record their future encounter with Jesus, which we know happened because the other Gospels tell us, but not Mark. He stops his account suddenly, abruptly, unsatisfyingly. The story demands a proper ending. 
Indeed, it seems the church later tried to provide one. But Mark was not ignorant of what he was doing. He stopped his account deliberately, knowing that an end was needed, but focusing his attention not on the women and what the end would be for them, but on you, the reader, for whom the end is not known, but for whom you should know what your end will be. The story of Jesus' final days draws you in all the different action and characters and excitement and drama. Meetings in the night, the brutality of and cruelty of his treatment. The story cries out for a satisfactory ending. But Mark's concern is not how it ended for the women. His concern is how will it end for you? How will you enter and complete story. The crucifixion courage of Joseph of Arimathea was really an expression of faith. He chooses Christ over worldly reputation. The resurrection fear of the women is an expression of faith, acknowledging that more than a mere man is here. More than a mere man was at work, but this indeed was the very presence of God. The way to Easter joy is the way of faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. The women would go on to encounter the risen Christ, and they believed, and they fell in worship at his feet. Have you encountered the living and resurrected Christ? Will you worship at his feet? Jesus promised that whenever his disciples would gather in his name, there he would be with them even to the end of the age. Jesus is here today. He has promised. You may not see him, but do you believe that he is here, that his word is true? Do you believe that he died not for himself, but because of your sins? Do you believe that he conquered death for your salvation? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Easter is not a Christian memorial day where we honor the memory of a dead martyr from the past. It is a celebration of the living Savior, Jesus, resurrected from the grave, triumphant over death, present here in our congregation, raised by God's power for all who will believe. May God give you not only grace to believe, but the joy of believing in Jesus.
the crucified, risen, and living Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the story has become so familiar that we, in a sense, have lost the awareness of what it must have been for Joseph to identify with the crucified Jesus. For the women to go to the tomb and find it inexplicably open, the body inexplicably missing, and an unknown stranger speaking words that were contrary to normal human understanding. And yet Christ was risen. He is risen indeed. Oh Lord, help us to see with the eyes of faith and help us to embrace in our hearts your Son, whom you sent for our sakes to die for our sins and to be raised for our salvation. Fill us with his joy today the joy which led him first to the cross and then to triumph over sin and death and hell. Fill us, Lord, with yourself, by your Spirit. Fill us with love for Jesus and for his people. Fill us with joy that we could be so loved by Almighty God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.